So like I prayed this morning, we're going to talk about boldness. In particular, how is it found? How do we who tend toward cowardice, I, I understand that all of us, some better than others, are good at putting forth a uh, courageous front. But deep down, I have to believe that because the fall is true, uh, that there is, to varying degrees, fears, insecurities, shame, cowardice within us all. How do we who tend toward cowardice become a people of boldness that the Bible calls us to be? Remember where we are in the story. For the first time, the apostles have been arrested for preaching the gospel. Uh, They are released this first time without punishment, but they are given the admonishment, do not speak or teach about the name of Jesus. But the apostles' parting words to the council are this, you do what you have to do, but we can't help but speak about Jesus. And that's the tension that we, uh, where we left off last week. Don't talk about Jesus anymore. I'm sorry, we can't help but to talk about Jesus. And it kind of leaves us hanging of, wow, what's going to happen with that? And what they're going to need is boldness. And we do too. I'm, I'm not naive that we don't face that we, that we face the uh, threats that they're facing in this passage, imprisonment and even death that is to come in Acts. But as I have often helped us see and as I've spoken of in, in many different contexts, with the rise of secularism, there is this kind of newfound post-Christian um, persecution that we won't kill you but we'll marginalize you. We will, we will take your claims and we will make them utterly untenable to our cultural plausibility structures. And so, yes, we too need courage, which is what I want to look at today. Today's my youngest son's birthday. Henry's, uh, Henry's three today. You can wish him a happy birthday when you see him. If you like, he don't know presents. He needs no more presents. Uh, that boy does not need any more spoiling. Uh, so just a happy birthday would be good. Um, and his big, his big uh, birthday surprise yesterday was uh, Paw Patrol Live at Rupp Arena. Um, everybody know, everybody familiar with Paw Patrol? Paw Patrol fans here? Okay. <laughs> you clap for Paw Patrol, okay. All right, no job too big, no pup too small. Um, so, yeah, if you're not familiar with Paw Patrol... You, don't, you do not need to be aware of the final, finer points of Paw Patrol to get my illustration here. Here's what you need to know. The antagonist in Paw Patrol is Mayor Humdinger and his mischievous band of cats, the Kitten Catastrophe Crew. Um, now, as far as villains go, Mayor Humdinger is about as docile as you're going to find. Uh, but in Henry's mind, he might as well be Darth Vader. And so yesterday, when we surprised him with these tickets to Paw Patrol Live, he was really excited, mixed with, uh uh-oh. He said, are all the characters going to be there? He said, yeah, they're all going to be there, buddy. You're going to get to see them all. Even Mayor Humdinger? And said, yeah, I'm sure Mayor Humdinger will be there. And then you could just see the conflict rising in his soul. 
hours leading up to the show, he kept in just different ways asking us, are you sure Mayor Humdinger's going to be there? And you can see him struggling with the dilemma, as much as I want to go, I'm going to have to come face to face with Mayor Humdinger. Well, when the, when the show starts, uh, it, it's exactly what we expected. Um, he, he was very nervous. Uh, and Abby and I could tell that he was really nervous. He did end up getting over it. Uh, by the second act, uh, he was dancing in the aisles and all that stuff. But at first, um, we could tell he was freaking out. And so Abby and I, we did, there were two methods that we employed to get him to be able to handle this situation. Um, first was our strength. We, he was sitting in his own seat and we could tell that he was nervous and, and, and fidgety and all that. So Abby just grabbed him and put him in her lap and held him tight and assured him that we would not let Mayor Humdinger get to him. And then the second was to reassure him of the plan. Um, what we kept telling him, I find ourselves telling him was, mommy and daddy would never have planned this. We would never have taken you here if there was any chance that you could be harmed. Strength and the plan. And as we turn to our passage, these are the two things that we are going to see um, emerge as the key to boldness. I'll give them better language. I'm going to call it God's power and God's providence. What do the apostles do in response to the immediate threat? Well, they gather together. With, I love this, by the way. They gather together with their friends and they say, will you pray? Will you pray for us? And they pray for boldness. Now, that in itself is so encouraging do not have this view of the apostles and acts as brazenly fearless. They were not. They're like us. They're scared. They don't want to get arrested. They don't want to get martyred. They're scared. And so they get their friends together and say, will you pray for us? We just told them that we're going to do the very thing that they, that they said we're not allowed to do. We're scared. Will you pray? And so they pray. But what I want to do is evaluate their prayer. I want to look at their prayer and see where they turn. Because in it, we are given this biblical path to boldness. And like I said, it's going, it's going to come to us in two different ways. God's power that leads to boldness and God's providence that leads to boldness. Let's look at both. Power. Look at, look at how they begin their prayer in verse 24. Sovereign Lord... Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now that's not just eloquent Christianese to start the prayer in some, uh, in some holy fashion. It is a profound declaration of power. Sovereign Lord, and then they qualify. When we say sovereign, we mean sovereign. The creator and sustainer of all in heaven and earth and everything in it. Sovereignty not only means that he owns heaven and earth and everything therein, it means that he is running and sustaining heaven and earth and everything therein. And they invoke the truth of God's sovereignty as a reminder that things are not as they seem. Meaning this, these circumstances that they are facing are not telling the truth. Though it appears that the great Roman Empire is in charge... 
Though it appears that the Jewish high priest and establishment is religiously in charge, though we are the ones who just got arrested, though it appears these forces have the power to eradicate this little fledgling newfound movement, these circumstances are in fact not in charge. God is in charge. God is sovereign. And they address this sovereign Lord as one who is on their side. What they're doing is they are reminding themselves that the lesser powers are the ones that are against them. And that the ultimate power is the one that is for them. The true sovereign is the one we're talking to in prayer. And we must remember the same. The sovereignty of God is not a fun theological idea to debate in Bible studies and coffee shops. It is a doctrinal rock on which to stand. Every Christian throughout the centuries has been tempted by circumstances to believe that something other than their God is in charge. Whether it be Nero in their context or Islam in another context or, or communism or modernism or postmodernism or hedonism or secularism or whatever other ism you want to name. If we, walk by the, if we walk by the sight of our circumstances, we will be tempted to believe the latest ism is sovereign. But by faith, we know that God is sovereign and transcends the rise and fall of every ism. The sovereignty of God continues to stand upon the graves of fallen worldly systems and powers. And the point of their prayer is that the true sovereign is with us. And he is with you too. The one who owns the universe, sovereign of heaven and earth, is for you. The one who commands all of creation, from the furthest galaxies to the tiniest atoms, commands you and your destiny as well. Does that not embolden you? That the one who controls all things is with and for you. It is the power that leads to the boldness that we all seek. But it goes further. Because a good question that is probably perhaps on your mind is this. Sounds good in theory, but doesn't look like reality. Meaning... Gathering together and praying... Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and earth and sea and everything in them... That may comfort us inside the safe confines of Christian worship, but out in the real world, these comforting words prove themselves empty because it sure doesn't look like he's sovereign. It sure does not look like he's in charge. Well, let's answer that fear with the next observation. Not only a power that leads to boldness, there's a providence that leads to boldness, which is that power in action. Providence is just the theological word that is used to describe the practical, sovereign control of God. In other words, sovereignty is the reality that God is in charge. Providence is the way in which his sovereignty, his being in charge manifests itself in every way. The truth is he rules 
by means of his providence. Now, historically speaking, um, historically speaking, Christians never doubted God's providential control over all things. It's going to be, it's, it's hard to find a Christian tradition that did not affirm that God is sovereignly, providentially in control of everything. But I will admit, in our time, the majority of our churches and perhaps even the majority of Christians, maybe some of you even here, and that's okay, would deny God's providential control over everything, particularly bad things. But I'm going to read the next part of our text. And I just want to ask you with intellectual honesty, is there any other way, is there, is there any other way to interpret what we read? Is there any way around the truth that God is in complete control, yes, even over bad things that happen? Listen to the implications of these verses, just with teachable minds. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then he quotes from Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now let me unpack this because again, I think this is... A theological hang-up in our day. Let me, sh- let me not just unpack it theologically, but to show us how it leads to boldness. They quote Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm predicting the coming of Jesus and the world turning against Jesus. Uh, the psalm asks, why do the Gentiles rage? And the peoples, meaning the people of Israel. So you've got the Gentiles and Israel against this Messiah, Messiah figure. Why do they plot? The kings of the earth and the rulers gather together against the Lord and his anointed. That's Jesus. Then our passage is saying that prediction was ultimately fulfilled in the death of Christ. For truly, they say, for truly in this city there were gathered together against Jesus. Herod, who is the ruler. Pontius Pilate, who is the king, along with The Gentiles, and yes, the people of Israel, all of them have gathered together to kill Jesus, just as you said they would. In other words, you said it would happen, and it has happened just like you said. Now, does that necessarily mean that he is in control of what happened? Or could it just mean that he is all-knowing? He knew what was going to happen, how it was going to happen, but that doesn't necessarily mean he wanted it to happen. Well, it gets very clear. You see, Psalm 2 asks a question that goes unanswered, and the apostles answer it for us in Acts 4. Psalm 2 says, why do the Gentiles rage? Why do the people's plot in vain? Why are the rulers and kings gathered against Jesus? The answer from Acts 4, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. No qualifications, Clear as day, this is the will of God. To do whatever your plan has predestined to take place. Every detail of Christ's crucifixion was the perfect providence of God. When they shouted crucify him, that was the will of God. 
When Pilate gave in to their demands, that was the will of God. When they mocked him, when they beat him, when they dressed him up and put a crown of thorns on him, when they spit in the anointed one's face, it was the will of God. When the hammer came down on the nail that drove the spikes through his wrist, when the, when the sword pierced his, spear, pierced his side, it was the will of God. And when he bowed his head and breathed his last under the weight of holy justice and wrath, it was the perfect providential will of God. Now, do you know how significant that is? Every detail of every moment of the greatest atrocity the world has ever known was predestined and executed by the will and providence of Almighty God, thus fulfilling Isaiah. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Now, here's the immediate question. What makes you think you're better than Jesus? What makes us think that we are more valuable and important to Jesus as though when affliction and persecution and any hardship you can name comes your way, well then it must be an exemption to God's providence because there's no way he would want something bad to happen to me. He is sovereign on the sunny days and he is sovereign on the rainy days. And we know this clear as could be in the death of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not just trying to defend classic reform doctrine here. There is beauty and freedom and definitely boldness to be found if you will embrace this doctrine And so many miss it because they are afraid of it. This doctrine will lead to boldness. How? Well, we have stated in the clearest terms God's providence in the suffering and death of Christ. Now let me ask you this. Why? He is not malicious. He doesn't harm for the fun of it. Why the cross? Well, you know. What was accomplished by the will of God to crush his son? Endless, eternal good. We will spend all eternity reveling in the benefits of the divinely ordained and orchestrated suffering of the Son of God. Now make the connection that the disciples made. The disciples pray, your sovereign God And you plan the execution of Jesus in order to accomplish endless good. Now, will you look upon the threats that we are facing and grant us boldness to endure them? Do you get it? Do you get get what, what they're saying? May we know. May we hold fast. May we be so bold knowing that just like your providence over Jesus' death, whatever threats we face, whatever persecution is coming, whatever affliction we must endure, you are sovereignly at work, just like the cross, to bring about what is good. This truth is going to be illustrated in the clearest ways in three chapters. Looking ahead, we see God answer their prayer for boldness. Boy, are they bold. And then in Acts 7, there's Stephen... Facing death, boldly proclaiming Jesus, 
And the crowd picks up stones and martyrs him. Where is God? How could he let this happen? How could this possibly be his providential will? Well, in that crowd, witnessing this boldness was a man named Saul, who would become known as Paul, as in the great apostle Paul, as in the writer of half the New Testament, including the book written to the church in Rome, which includes chapter 8, verse 28, where he declares... And I now declare unto you, we know, for certain, we know that God works all things, all things, not just the good things, all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So when you get to glory, you ask Stephen if he would gladly endure stoning if it would become the seed that sprouted the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. God works all things including suffering and affliction for the good. And the key there is defining good. If you define that well, then you cannot lose and you will find yourself so bold. This was Charles Spurgeon's uh, famous point in Romans 8.28, in his sermon on Romans 8.28. That was the main point of his sermon, is he says, you want to understand Romans 8.28? you got to understand what it means. you got to define good. If it is your finances, if it is your health, if it is your comfort, if it is your protection, if it is good according to worldly categories, then God works all things for good is a lie. It will cost you that good. But if it is good according to God... Good as in your salvation, good as in your sanctification, good as in your love and worship for him, good as in your love for neighbor, good as in the advancement of the gospel and the kingdom. Good defined by God makes his providence make sense. And that is our assurance. Everything is designed and controlled by the sovereignty of God to be for good, as God defines good. If your definition of good is his definition of good, then you literally cannot lose and you are emboldened. It's very emboldening to know you cannot lose. Consider the power of God. Consider the providence of God. And then now consider, what have you to fear? That's the connection they make in their prayer. Verse 29. Now, Lord, with these truths declared, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. They have spoken, they have ascribed to God his power. They have ascribed to God his providence. And now they apply it to their immediate circumstances. Now, Lord, consider these threats and give us boldness. They don't view these doctrines as disconnected from their circumstances, but as the lens by which to understand their circumstances. They view God's power and God's providence as fully applicable to their own lives. And I ask you, do you have the courage to do the same? Here's my application question for you, and perhaps for your parish group tonight over dinner, um, if, if you're meeting. Here's my application question for you, an intimate one. What are you afraid of? I don't ask that rhetorically like, what are you afraid of? I ask that like, 
for you to name it. For you to name it. What gives you that pit of anxiety in your stomach? What's keeping you up at night? What do you try to distract yourselves from thinking about during the day? What are you afraid of? And now I want, to, I want you to view that through the lens of God's power and providence. Friends, I don't mean to be trite. I really don't. I do not mean to minimize, minimize your fears. I really don't. But through the lens of God's power and providence, your greatest fear is about as threatening as Mayor Humdinger at Paw Patrol Live. To him, is the scariest thing in the world. And we're just sitting here like, really? That's scary? To you, your fears are real and your fears are scary. But brothers and sisters, things are not as they seem. There is nothing you can name that can touch the power and providence of our God. If God could use the greatest evil and greatest defeat, the crucifixion of the Son of God, for the greatest good and the greatest triumph, then there is nothing His sovereignty cannot handle. Does that not embolden your weak and fearful hearts? The discovery of His power, the discovery of His providence, yields the discovery of your boldness. Let me pray. Lord, we come now to your table, which is the demonstration of your good from the atrocity of the divinely planned cross. Why did you let that happen? Why did your providence plan the rulers and the world gathering against the anointed Messiah to crucify him? Why did you let that happen so that this can happen? So that we can come to this table and remember his body given for us, his blood shed for us. May we indulge in the good that you have brought from the cross and may it embolden us to go forth knowing your power and your providence can handle any and all fears. In Jesus' name, amen.